Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Ever wonder how the game poker got its name? Wondering about the history behind the word ukulele? And did you know that there's an Irish connection to the word hooligan? Well, we're going to find out all about this because our own Susie Dent of the North East is back for more word foolery. Yes, author Grace Tierney is with me. She's discussing the fascinating origins behind the words poker, hooligan, cenotaph, to name just a few as our word foolery Wednesdays return. How are you doing, Grace? Good morning, Sinead, and Begara to you. <laughs> Begara, be gods and begaras, absolutely, yes. We, we were, yes, we'll have to go into that at some point again, where how the word Begara came into existence in Ireland. That's for another day. But we were back with Word Foolery, and today we're looking to the news for inspiration and Cenotaph. Okay, it's very important today, being the 11th of November, uh, very appropriate. So tell me about Cenotaph. Well, Cenotaph, I was actually surprised to find wasn't originally anything to do with soldiers or wars. It's actually a word that the sea gave us, which is how I came across it because I was doing the book. So cenotaphs were first created in ancient Greece and they were monuments for those that were lost at sea because there was no bodies to bury. So they would erect a tower or structure on a headland overlooking the sea and that was your cenotaph. So it comes from two different Greek words and pardon my Greek pronunciation, but it was uh, kenos, which is empty, and taphos, which is tomb. So the two together gave you cenotaph. Um, And it's actually kind of tragic because obviously it's the tomb that has no body in it. Mm. And that's, I think, where they decided to go, Okay, we need to commemorate soldiers. And a lot of the soldiers' bodies didn't come back from the First World War. So... Yes, they do have a separate memorial for the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier, but this one's for everybody that didn't come back. So sailors and soldiers and merchant seamen and all those that, that died in the in the conflict. So when they wanted to do a commemoration of Armistice Day, which was the 11th hour, the 11th day and the 11th month, uh, they decided to erect a cenotaph in Whitehall in London. And it's probably the most famous one. There are ones all over the world. Um, quite sure there's some in Ireland as well. Mm. But the one in Whitehall was designed by uh, quite a famous chap called Sir Edward Lutyens. And it was to commemorate everybody that died in World War One. So it was unveiled two years later on the 11th of November 1920. So it's actually 100 years old uh, today, in fact. And uh, within a week of it being unveiled, more than one million people had visited it. Wow. And it was 10 foot deep in flowers, which I think sort of gives <clears throat> some sort of a, an indication of just how much people were grieving at the time and how many people had been lost. It was something like one in 10 of service-staged uh, men had died in the conflict. Wow, and yeah, that whole idea, like when you break it down and it's empty tomb, it really hits at home, you know, uh, in terms of all the grief that would have been, you know, experienced by people whose loved ones didn't come back. I mean, how do you even get closure on something like that? And to know that they died, you know, in such a horrendous way as well. Absolutely, a, a really, really appropriate word for today and a fascinating story uh, behind it. Now, 
Moving on, because this word, right, I first heard this word when my mother referred to myself and my brothers as hooligans if we were acting up at home or being rowdy. You know, so used in a sentence, stop acting like hooligans or if it was just my brother, ye pair of hooligans. <laughs> it's a great word <laughs> and it originates in Ireland. It does, which really surprised me, although maybe it shouldn't because, of course, I call people hooligans as well. <laughs> They're usually Irish. They're usually my kids. Um yeah, so the original hooligan was an Irishman. So uh, the, the definition is basically a rough, lawless young person. A uh, bit unfair on the young people. I'm sure there's elderly hooligans as well. But uh, nonetheless, it was Patrick Hooligan and he was an Irish criminal. We don't know exactly where he came from, but probably County Limerick. And he wasn't in Ireland at this point. He was active in London during the 1890s. So Patrick and his family, and his surname was actually Hulahan. Uh, not Hollihan, so no relation to Tony Hollihan, I was checking. Okay. <laughs> um, they based themselves, as a sort of a gang, they based themselves at a pub called the Lamb and Flag in Southwark. Uh, Southwark? Southwark? I never know how to say that. In South London anyway, and they attracted a gang of rowdy followers and were right better hooligans. His name came to be used as a term for ruffian in cartoons and newspaper reports and comic songs, and it just stuck. So he'd worked as a bouncer, but then he sidelined as a bit of a tough guy, mugging victims in the street and uh, creating lots of criminal damage. But he came to a rather grim end because he did end up in life imprisonment for murdering a policeman. Wow. Okay. Yeah, I can see where the origin comes from with that one. That is fascinating. And it might make me think twice when I use it myself in a sentence. Um, You have another word for us. And ukulele, right? This has come up an awful lot this year because a lot of people took up the ukulele during lockdown. That's thanks to Brezzy's lockdown ukulele lessons that he was doing. Uh, but this is a word that you've come across a lot this year. Yeah, well, I had somebody mentioned in passing, and I can't give them credit because I can't remember, but somebody said, oh, it means this. This is where it comes from and it's Hawaiian. And I went, yeah, sure it is. Because I didn't have a connection of that to Hawaii at all or what they were telling me. But when I delved into it, it turned out they were right, but there was a little bit more to it. Um, and Brezzy's uh, sending out his 400 ukuleles to everybody around the country certainly inspired people back in April and over the summer. So uh, I thought it was a worthwhile one to look into. So first of all, ukulele is actually a type of lute, which I didn't know. It has four strings and the instrument itself originated in Portugal. It was brought to Hawaii by immigrants, Portuguese immigrants that settled in Hawaii, which wouldn't be a bad job on a day like today. Yeah. And there it basically entered straight into English as as a word directly from Hawaiian. So it's, it's two words joined together, just like Cenotaph was. So it's yuko, which means louse or flee, and then lele, which means jump, fly or leap. Okay. Uh, and I, that was why I was confused. Leaping flee. I'm kind of like, I just don't see the connection. Yeah. But the idea was because you played it so rapidly. So it was a rapid finger action required to play it. And a reminder to the people looking at it of fleas hopping across the strings. It may even be linked to the playing style of one particular uh, ukulele expert who was an Englishman called Edward William Purvis. And he was an officer uh, to King Kalua who was the uh, the king of Hawaii. Again, forgive my Hawaiian pronunciation, but uh, this chap was particularly good at it and the king was a keen patron of the arts and he particularly liked this guy's playing style. So it was like the leaping flea. But I loved the fact that the king, who was the last king of Hawaii, he uh, died in 1891, 
He himself played the ukulele and he used to have it at concerts and parties and things at the Royal Palace. And as a result, he had a great royal nickname. So you know the way you might have, you know, I don't know, Edward the Confessor or yeah. Ivor the Bold or whatever. He wasn't that. He was the Merry Monarch. Which oh, I, I love that. Brilliant nickname. Yes. I mean, obviously he was a great guy and you had to throw a good party. And the ukulele, obviously, a uh, centre point in those parties as well. Absolutely. Uh, now, d- no doubt a lot of people are missing their social life. Perhaps the weekly game of poker has not been on the cards. I know. Due to oh. COVID. There's a great story about how poker got its name. Uh, yeah. And honestly, when I started looking at this one, I was convinced poker was going to be really, really obvious. OK, so poker obviously is an object you use to poke your fire, literally. That's how you get that sort of poker. Mm. But poker, the card game, has nothing to do with poking your fire, okay? Um, And it it does come back down to how you play poker. Um, So when when we sit down to play poker here with the the teams, uh, we don't play with real money. We play with the the old plastic coins, and it's for bragging rights. So whoever wins that night, you get to basically tease everybody else thereafter about how awesome you are. And bragging is where we get to it. So there is an earlier version of poker, which is called brag. And it's essentially bluffing, bragging. I think they used to play it in Jane Austen novels, certainly that time period yes. anyway. But then we move on to actual poker as we'd know it. starts to appear in the late 1820s and it was being played by uh, gamblers on the river boats on the Great Mississippi River over in uh, America. So this is actually one that uh, rather than us giving it to the Americans, the Americans gave it back to us. But possible other claims from some other countries, because it can be quite hard to pin these things down. There's also an earlier card game called uh, Pockspiel in German, where Spiel means game and Pock means you're, uh, to brag or to bluff. Then there's a French game called Pock, uh, which is spelled differently, but it's very similar. So it looks like there were several card games at around the same time where people started bluffing and that that was the core of the game was could you bluff and get the gambling but it was the American gamblers that really nails it with poker and that's where it creeps its way into the language. Then we have the subsidiary word of poker face, the idea yes. of control your facial expression and bluff really well, which I cannot I do. can't do it. No, it's written all over my face when I ever try to do anything yes. like this. And this is why I always lose and why the kids get their bragging rights <laughs> after we play. But it didn't actually arise for quite a while. So it was about 50 years later after poker got going before people started saying poker face. And of course, it's very widespread now. Absolutely. And there's a Lady Gaga song about it. Uh, you've one more word. And again, this is very appropriate given everything that we've got experienced uh, via our friends in the United States Uh, I mean, have we got a president? Have we not? Who knows? It was a marathon election. Tell us about the origins of the word marathon. Uh, Well, marathon isn't a political word originally, but it just was on my mind because I was watching far too much politics this week. Um, Many people will probably know at least part of this story, but it's a little bit more elaborate. So there was a battle of marathon. Marathon was a place. So in 490 BC, There is a battle between the citizens of Athens and the Persian army. And the race is then named after a legendary run by one Greek soldier. I'm not even going to try and say his name, but he ran nonstop from the battlefield in Marathon to Athens to bring the glad tidings that the Greeks had won. But unfortunately, the run is too much for him. He collapses and dies after delivering the news. I mean, it's a great story. It is a a great story. Legend, right? So his run was actually 25 miles. 
And that's the distance that a marathon was up until the 1920s. Now, I'll explain in a bit exactly how that changes. But there's debate about the details of the legend. And it's a long time ago, so who really knows? But Herodotus, who is a famous Greek historian of that period, mentions the run. But he says that the guy was a messenger who ran from Athens to Sparta, so completely different directions. Mm. And he was asking for help and then ran back with the answer to the battlefield. Now, if he had done that, the distance would actually have been 150 miles each way. Right? Okay. I'm thinking that would probably explain the whole dying at the end of it a little bit better. <laughs> yeah. So he doesn't mention a messenger from the Battle of Marathon at all. But he does say that the entire Greek army marched back from it in a huge hurry because they feared a Persian naval raid against Athens because they'd left their city, their city-state, completely undefended. But they were pretty worried because King Darius of Persia had sworn at this point to burn Athens to the ground in response to an earlier battle. He even hired a servant to remind him of his vows three times a day before dinner. Oh, God. Like an early reminder notification. <laughs> the Greek army arrives back in less than a day. I'm not sure that that's realistic either, but they rush back to Athens and they manage to defeat the Persians and save Athens. So, There's loads of different legends around it. All we know for sure is that the distance did change. And this one I quite like. I I don't know if you know this one, but basically it was changed to accommodate the royal family. In 1908, uh, the distance was changed to be 26 miles and 386 yards. So just a smidge longer. Um, But I'm sure that last mile is a killer for the marathon runners. And this was because Queen Alexandria had requested that the marathon start from the lawn of Windsor Castle so that the small members of the royal family could watch it from their nursery windows. And then it would finish in front of the royal box at the Olympic Stadium. And that's been the distance for marathons ever since. That is absolutely fascinating. Really, really and truly. Grace, as always, thank you for bringing us this this insight into the origins of these words. I'm really looking forward to next month. We have a very Christmas-themed word foolery coming up in December. But for now, thank you so much for joining me. Thanks. Bye.